Thank you for listening in to episode number 15 of My Awakening Podcast. This episode provides a somewhat different but important perspective than we may have heard from some of our previous guests. It is critical for all of us to recognize that our fellow black citizens are no more aligned in their thinking than us white citizens may be on any given topic. I really appreciated the honesty and transparency that Richard and Deborah brought to this episode and I hope you will find their sharing as thought-provoking as I did. So, let's get started. I'm really happy to introduce some new friends today that have agreed to come and share with us on our podcast. Richard Ferguson and his wife, Deborah. They have spent some time with us here visiting and getting to know Rita and I today, and I really appreciate that. So, Richard, would you like to share with us? Joe, thank you so, so kindly. Uh, my name's Richard Ferguson. I am a 67-year-old black male that live in Gig Harbor, Washington. Uh, I'm originally from Pensacola, Florida, Southern boy. Um, my father was a military man. And uh, I grew up sort of in my younger years in, a, in an all-black southern town in Pensacola. First few years of my life, I went to a all-black elementary school until about the age of seven. My father joined the military and he shipped us off with uh, myself and my two sisters to Europe. And it was a, it was very interesting coming from a uh, small southern town to, uh, to live in a place called Nancy, France. And it was fascinating for us we actually lived downtown with French people, and, and uh, at one time I actually spoke French pretty well. And we stayed in France for three years as my father served his military duties for his country. Afterwards, we, uh, we moved to Mannheim, Germany, and we stayed in Mannheim until 1965. And afterwards, my father was... Uh, transferred to Fort Lewis, Washington. And uh, prior to coming to Fort Lewis and living in, in Europe, we, I had lived on a, on a military base and, and actually avoided some of the racial tensions that were going on in the, in the 60s. actually saw it on television. But uh, with parents from the South, the Civil Rights Movement and all of the things that... Uh, that black people were struggling for equal rights of, of voting, uh, school of your choice, being, e being able to eat at uh, whatever establishment you want to was actually ingrained in me. And it was kind of interesting having a, a black family in the 60s. We lived in, a, in an all-white neighborhood. And when I say that, I mean that literally. There were no other black families around us but yet it was multicultural we had an Indian uh, a Native American family living right across the street and and uh, and we had a, a, a Mexican American family living sort of kitty corner from us so uh, during this time I was in the eighth grade and I I had the 
the interesting experience of going to a all-white middle school. And when I say all-white, there were three blacks in the entire school, and I was one of them. And I've heard uh, all the, the the jokes that you can imagine about uh, from some of these kids that I went to school with. I heard reasons why I couldn't go to their house or why I could go to their house. I was I was actually thrust into really my first view of uh, racial issues when I went to Mason Junior High School back in the 60s here in uh, Tacoma, Washington. And I, re- I remember being at, at Mason the, the year that Martin Luther King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated and uh, hearing my teachers always trying to tell me you know, don't dis- don't be discouraged. Things are going to get better. It's going to be all right. Consequently, after leaving Mason, <clears throat> during these years, junior high was seventh, uh, eighth, and ninth. I went to uh, I went to Stadium High School in Tacoma, which was a a more diversified school, and uh, had a great time in school. I excelled in sports. I even ran for student body president, which I lost. But uh, I had a I had a great time uh, at Stadium. I left Stadium High School, where I uh, went to undergrad at Washington State University in Pullman. And after being uh, being in Pullman for for four years, I graduated with a, a degree in chemistry and biology, and and actually had a minor in theater acting, and applied to dental school and was accepted to dental school at the University of Washington. After completing my uh, dental training, I went into the military as an officer where I was a dentist. And I stayed in the military for a few years until I got out in 1985 and bought a dental clinic in Tacoma, Washington. And I practiced dentistry for 25 years and after 25 years of being a private practicing dentist, I sold my practice and became a free man again, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, met this beautiful lady that I'm sitting next to, who was a wonderful patient of mine. She had good teeth, so I decided to marry her. And, and her name is Deborah. So with that as a start, I'll pass the mic. Oh boy, good afternoon. It's such a pleasure to be here and I guess I'll go back to my beginnings. Um, born in South Bend, Indiana. Um, wasn't there long before we packed up and moved to Athens, Greece. My father was in the Air Force and we moved to Greece and we were there for six years. Um, and I am uh, Irish and African-American descent, so um, kind of a mixture. And uh, we lived in Greece for six years. We actually, my sister and I, um, learned to speak Greek, uh, the language, very well. Um, We had, back in those days, um, we didn't live on the military uh, base. We lived off base, and uh, we actually had a maid named Unia. I'll never forget her. She had a son named Demetrius. 
and um, my two younger brothers were born there. And I can remember playing and tangerine trees and a big German shepherd that lived next door that I would always go over and unchain so he could run loose with us and play. And then the Greek lady would come over and I'm not sure what she was saying to my mom, but I don't think it was very nice because her face was very red. She got upset that I loved her dog so much that I didn't want to see it on a chain. Um, and then we moved back to the United States. And at that time, I was in first grade. I believe it was first grade. First or second grade. And uh, we moved into a housing area. Now it's Shalashan. Um, back then it was military housing, pretty much, on the east side of Tacoma. And I actually have to say, I never really thought of racism or color until we got back here. And I always remember being invited to a birthday party. And my mom bought the gift and wrapped it real pretty. And I walked, probably was for a little kid, it seemed 10 blocks down um, to the party. And knocked at the door. And I remember the little girl's mom, the girl was excited I was there. Her mother cracked the door open and said, you can't come in here. And um, I didn't understand that. So it just broke my heart. So I went back home, and that's when my mom had to give me the lesson on racism and explain to me that some people just have an issue with the color of your skin. And I'm looking at my skin thinking it wasn't that much far off than the lady that told me I couldn't come in her house. But um, that was a real eye-opener for me. Um, so as life went on, um, I explained to you earlier about being called uh, the N-word when I was in middle school, which was very hurtful at the time. Um, but I went to a multicultural school, actually Lincoln High School, a Abe's, and um, <laughs> we were always considered the uh, underdogs, more or less, um, lower income status, more or less, back then. And in fact, Richard and I joke about that even still, but we always beat them in football and basketball and, and all the other sports. But um, just growing up, not really even knowing that we didn't have a lot of money, but we were happy. Um, went on to go to Pacific Lutheran University, went in as pre-nursing and realized that I didn't like body excretements like vomit and all the other stuff that comes with it. So I knew I was in the wrong profession. So I got out of that, ended up going to, uh, at that time it was Fort Stillicum Community College. Um, now it's Pierce College. Um, I had done two years at PLU, Pacific Lutheran, and then transferred to uh, Fort Stillicum or Pierce College and got my degree in animal uh, vet technology and um, my associate's degree. And then ended up working at the Humane Society for 34 years, where I ended up retiring. And in the interim of that, I met my dentist, and uh, the rest is history. Hmm. So, uh, were you at the Humane Society here in this area, or in Kitsap, or where Tacoma, were you? Tacoma Pierce County Humane Society. Oh, Tacoma, okay. Mm -hmm. huh. mm -hmm. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, there's another thing that I didn't mention. Raising young men um, for children, 
um, having to uh, buying the, our first, first home, um, having to be very careful where we bought. Uh, we didn't want to live in Yelm or Graham or any isolated areas. We wanted to be in an area where it was um, racially balanced. Um, now, this was your previous marriage? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, we we always had to take into consideration what schools our children would be in um, because we did have friends that had children in other school districts where they were the only children of color and they were called names and um, harassed, and we didn't want that for our children. And um, children just are children until thoughts are put into their heads. Um, so we end up moving into an area that was nice, but there were there was a Samoan family, there was our family, there was a Cambodian family, and then there were white families around. So it was a melting pot, which was really nice because the school they went to was a melting pot as well. But just the fact that we had to take that into consideration. And well, What part of town did you end up? On? Lakewood. On Lakewood, okay. They went to uh, Clover Park. Okay. And um, talking to our sons about dating and um, who they dated. And, um, and my sons are real brown-skinned. And they, they dated women of, that were white. And we tried to explain to them that they had to, no matter how much they thought beautiful the woman was or how wonderful she was, that they also had to consider the family. That they weren't just dating the girls. They were dating the family as well because that's what raised them. And that they had to take into consideration that grandma or grandpa of that young lady may not like you because of the color of your skin. Hopefully that's not the case, but just be prepared. And unfortunately, occasionally, every once in a while, they experience that, which was heartbreaking. But having to have that conversation with them as they grew up, because um, we didn't teach that in our home, but there are people that still do not accept interracial relationships. Right. And so... You know, it's just one of those. Now they're all grown and and uh, doing well, but there was there was some heartbreaking times for them. Is that a, an experience, Richard, that your children also experienced? You, you know, I probably uh, I'm, I'm going to tell a story about my upbringing that uh, racism runs on both sides of the railroad tracks. You have you have. Uh, black people that are racist against white people and you have white people that are racist against black people mm -hmm. so a, a story that I'll never forget as long as I live and, and I don't tell this story often but I'm going to tell it today I went to Mason Junior High School and there are three blacks in the entire school and I'm going to Mason doing my years that I start looking at looking at girls and when you go to school, to a school that there are, are no black women at, if you go to a school that there are only three blacks in the school and you are one of them and there, there's two left and those other two are guys and you're starting to like girls, you're going to look at, 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 at white girls. So I remember, I won't mention her name out of respect for her, but I had a, my first girlfriend in the eighth grade and she was not black, and she, she was a white girl. And uh, 
Boy, she was brave back then. But uh, so I gave her my pin, a little pin that I had, and and she wore my pin proudly, and and she took me home to meet her parents, and they they were really nice to me. You know, I mean, I was I was a nice guy back then, and and you know they made dinner and 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 we sat down and ate, and and it was it was wonderful. But then I took her to my parents' house. Now you have to understand, my parents grew up in the South, and my parents grew up during a time that a a white that a black man could be lynched for, for even looking at a white woman, and they grew up during a time. And I I understand it now more than I did back then. But they grew up in a time and in a situation where there was not integrated integration or mixture of the races in terms of being romantic. So I, I'll never forget this. So I bring this this eighth grade little girl home to my house to meet my parents. And mom, this is my girlfriend. This is my first girlfriend. And uh, oh, my parents are so sweet. They're so nice. And that's what I expected, you know. And then the then the girl, you know, my mother cooked dinner and, and the girl left. And after the girl left my house, my mother looked at my father. And my mother said, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. She says, I'm not going to whoop him. You know, she says, you're not going to whoop him. I am. And my mother gave me a whooping for bringing this white girl home for dinner. And she told me, she says, as long as you live, don't you ever bring another white woman to this house and say she's your girlfriend. And that like just blew me out of the water because later in life, as I was in college, I have a, a younger sister that went to UPS. UPS, University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, is a predominantly white college. And my sister went there, and she had a white boyfriend. And so my sister brings this white guy to the, to the house, and my family just loves him. And they dated for like two or three years, and she never had a problem with it. Consequently, that that whooping sort of uh, that whooping sort of uh, framed my my thoughts or concepts in terms of what type of women I would date. Hmm. And from that point on, I I never seriously looked outside of my race um, when I was looking for for a relationship. And consequently, I never raised my own children like that. My only criteria. I raised three sons, is you had to bring home a woman. You couldn't bring home a man. Hmm. Well, I have a question um, that uh, comes to mind when you say this. I'm, I'm a little surprised that you might not have been aware of your folks' frame of mind on those issues by eighth grade. So they hadn't given you clues of any kind that something like this might be forbidden from their perspective and that was the first time you became aware of it was when you brought this white girlfriend home you know i've i've kind of you know being being brought up in a in a military town and 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 living in a a a somewhat diversified community even though it was the white side of town so to speak i never this is going to sound really i I never put myself in a category to think anything other than what came natural to me. 
I mean, I don't know if that makes any sense to you or not, but but for me, I I did what came naturally to me. Like I I've experienced some racism in my life, but. I never let racism or people stop me from doing or thinking or believing the way I I am. I never put a limit on who or what I am or what I can do, what I can be or or anything. So even though I, you know, I I had parents that grew up in the south and I was raised with southern concepts and ideologies, I just thought of naturally liking someone that I was attracted to and who liked me back. Right. Does that make any sense to you? Oh, absolutely. So I and and even to this day we live in a we live in a in Gig Harbor, Washington and and we we live in a uh a, a nice part of the neighborhood. It's very upper middle class and and I I just live and 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 do as I feel. I don't I don't put chains on me. I don't let mankind put chains on me. And if they do, I've always tried to figure a way to get them off. Yeah. So if, if that makes any sense, that, that's my whole concept. And, and I have three sons, and I've tried to raise them that way. Was there a further conversation that uh, happened as a result of the, your parents accepting um, your sisters having a white boyfriend and not accepting you having a white girlfriend did that ever get discussed further i was scared i'll get another whooping <laughs> but, uh, but 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 what i really think happened I, I i think my parents started to change their views okay you know i i i, th- I think as time went on my my parents you know they slowly started to change even though to their hearts, you know, they, they had the, the Southern ideologies. But I I think at some level that th- those concepts and ideologies were starting to uh, melt down. Yeah. Do you think, uh, I'm kind of curious, I, I guess I see plenty of um, mixed race couples and whatnot. It's very common today. At least up here, I don't know what it's like in the South or whatever. So I have no sense of that. But um, is it generally? Would you say the black culture is, for the most part, open to again a natural process, regardless of the color of the person that this uh, child falls in love with? You know, um, living in the South, I call it the the factory. And, and calling it the factory, what I mean by that, it's a place that the black people are produced. And, and black culture is, is not as, as integrated as it is up north. And so what you actually see in the south, it's not, it's not really tabooed, but you don't see it as frequently. Okay. It, it, it doesn't, I mean, if you see an integrated couple in the south, it sort of stands out more. In the South, there's more black men to choose black women and black women to choose black men. So therefore, there's not a need to, to look outside of your culture unless that's something that you really want to do. Where here in the North, you're put in situations where there's no, even though there's, there's minorities and black people and brown people here, you don't have the volume, you don't have the number. So consequently, you 
you start to look outside of your race more for um, other things. Um, I was, what part of town did you grow up in when you were here in Tacoma for all the time, like when you were going to high school and such? I lived close to the University of Puget Sound, which was a predominantly, in fact, it wasn't predominantly, we were the only black family that I knew uh, within blocks and blocks and blocks radius. What happened was when my father came back from Europe, uh, I'm surprised they, they even allowed him to buy a house in the area that they that he was because back then they were trying to redline people, put them in certain districts that they wanted to put all black people in one area. And, and, and now that I'm older, I'm so thankful that my dad never bought a a house in that neighborhood. We we lived in a nice neighborhood where the, you know, the grass was cut and and trash was picked up off the ground, and there was no wrecked cars in the front of your your house. We lived in a in in, in a in a middle class na- white neighborhood, and I think and I don't think I know this part of my success is as being a doctor and being a dentist and 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 being in the mindset that I am is is that I grew up in that in that section of town and mm-hmm. when I went to dental school I was the there was a I went to dental school at a time that that they brought you in by classes so there was a hundred kids in my dental school class and I and I was the only black student at that time in, in fact for that four years in dental school and I and I know the one of the reasons that I was successful and able to talk to the professors and the other students and what have you is is because of my upbringing, and uh, uh, and so I have to thank my parents. Even though at the time I I sometimes think my parents were too rough and too strict with me, I I really have to thank my parents for my success in terms of putting me in a neighborhood and and in an early school that I was able to uh, flourish in. I've um, thought for some time, and this is just um, uh, conjecture on my part. I don't have anything to back this up, but I've thought that uh, there's a a fair amount of black people that live in our area who are from somewhere else and came here uh, in the military, were stationed at Fort Lewis or McCord or what have you, and then they chose to stay here as more of a permanent home. And I've... I've kind of drawn my own assumptions on that, even though most of them still have a lot of family down south or wherever they came from. It uh, seems to me that they're, they have chosen to remain here uh, because of uh, feeling that they were in a better situation here than they would be if they were to just go back where they came from. And I, can you... Um, better better uh, explain why that phenomena is that many people that we see, many black people, the ones that I know, came from somewhere else, but they chose to stay here in the Northwest. You know, that's, that's absolutely true. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one, the economy is better up north in general than it is in the south. The, the, the wages that you receive on a job they're better than the wages that you're going to receive uh, down south. Um, basically, you can live in whatever area you want to in the north. You, you know, neighbors may not socialize with you at much, but as much, but you're able to live 
in any neighborhood basically that you can afford to live in and you're not and and your wages are better on the job and and I believe you feel freer here than you would in the south there's more opportunities here and and there are some places in the south that even though the south has changed a lot and my wife and I uh still go down south we have friends in the south we you know, in in New, in New Orleans, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia. I mean, we still, we. Lo- I love to go back to the South for so many cultural reasons, but I believe that that the that the the life uh, experience is actually better up north for these people, uh, these soldiers, these military people, than than it is down south. Absolutely. Mm. And I, I have to add to that. My mother, I'll, I'll never forget, when we came back from Greece and came to Tacoma, and my dad had an opportunity to go back to Indiana, because uh, my mom was born in Elkhart, Indi- Indi- Elkhart, Indiana. My dad was born in Missouri, and he had an opportunity to go back home um, to complete, to finish his military career. My mom put her foot down and said, I do not want to go back. I want to stay here. In Washington State, hmm. she did not want to go back, so that's how we end up staying. So uh, she she had the sway vote on that then. My mom had the sway vote on a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> She's a redheaded, fiery head lady. Uh, so yeah, my and my dad stayed here and stayed at McCord and finished his career at McCord. Okay. So. Um, Richard, I was curious, another thing that you said about being the only black person in dental school for the whole four-year period that you were there, and I'm assuming up in the, at Seattle at the UW campus up there, um, so did you experience a pretty uh, smooth uh, four-year period there without uh, racial issues of any kind? Uh, you know, I'm going to be really honest. Dental school was one of the hardest things that I ever went through in my life. I was determined to be successful. There is, there was, I was determined to be successful. For me, dentistry was was my ticket to having the freedoms that I wanted in life. And and sometimes I hear people say they want to do things. I want this out of life, or I want this out of life. I want this out of life. And, and my question to them is, is how bad do you really want it? Because, you know, we talk about wanting things now, but not, not willing to, to do what it takes to get these things that we, that we so desire. I had to really want to make it because the pressures on me, the pressures on me in dental school was so tremendous. Some, I mean, to be honest with you, God got me through dental school. God wanted me to be a dentist because I was under the microscope. I can tell you example of things in dental school that happened that um, in dental school, before you uh, put your hands in people's mouths, you have these models that you work on. And so you work on these models with teeth and you, you know, you shape them, you carve them, you do whatever. And there was a couple of guys in dental school that I became really good friends with that I still socialize and talk to today. And I told one of my friends in school, I said, you know what, they're not grading my work the same way that they're grading your work. 
He says, oh, man, you're lying. You know, you, you, they, they, they're not like that. I says, yes, they are. I'm not getting the same grades that you're getting. And so he says, I don't believe it. I says, look, let's, let's, let's do this. Let me take your work. I mean, and, and I had my work done. I says, let me take your work to the same instructor that, that you took it to. Let's erase your name off of it, and let's put my name on it, and let's see what happens. So he says, okay, he says, and, you know, we bet it a pitcher of beer or something, I forgot. He says, he says, he says, I bet you get the same grade I do. I says, I don't think so. I took his work, his model, and we raised his name off of it, and we put Ferguson on it, and we gave it to the instructor. He gets an A on his material. I get a C plus. And I says, okay, does that prove it to you? One time I took a test. And uh, and they always pass me, but you know, I mean, I didn't, I didn't get like you know the A's or the A pluses or the B pluses. I got you know, okay, that's good. So I had a, a written test one time, and and I turned my written test in, and I got the test back, and and they marked a mark wrong on my paper, and I remember there was there was a couple, there was a, a Chinese doctor there that was that was a children's dentist. And he and I had lunch one day. I says, I want you to look at my paper. I says, look at this answer that I put on my paper. I says, and they marked my answer wrong. Now, they passed my test, but my answer was wrong. He says, hey, man, just, he says, how bad do you want it? And, uh, you know, it was, it was rough because what happens is, is you have people that have, have, have uh, ideas and concepts of, of, of African students, black students, minority students, brown students. They have concepts, ideas about what you can do and what they can't do. And I've learned that my job was to show them that the ideas and the concepts they had are not always correct. So it was, it was difficult. I was under the microscope. If I miss class, everybody knew he's not here today. If they miss class, it was no big thing. So, you know, you just, you know, like I say, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want to be successful? How bad do you want a certain lifestyle? I knew that, that for me to have what I wanted to out of life, that I would need to do with this education, I mean, could nobody take it away from me? So once I learn dentistry, that is something that will be with me for the rest of my life, and can't no man take that away from me. But yeah. yeah, it was difficult, extremely. What you've described uh, sounds that the uh, uh, your fellow students were not an issue at all then. What you experienced some discrimination and unfair practices from was the administration or the uh, the instructors. Well, one thing is that you hang, you know, you have groups that you hang with. So, you know, when you got a hundred kids in, cl- in class, well, I will say this: I was elected in dental school a student body rep- representative, where for student council. So, you know, that was good. You know, I mean, but but you hang in groups. You got certain groups, certain study groups that you studied with, right. and so you know, I I stayed with. The, I mean, the guys that I hung out with are still my friends today. But, you, you know, I think any time that any person of color or, or, or someone who is different from the norm try to achieve something, they're going to be under the microscope. It's, I think it's human nature. I just think there are certain things in life that are just human nature. 
if you're different from someone else and you're trying to achieve a certain goal and yet you're different and there's a lot of other people and you stand out, you're just going to stand out. And that's why people like Jackie Robinson, you know, they had certain type of character or integrity where they could stand all of the stuff that was coming against them. You know, yeah. I, I did a good job in dental school, but I was also very young then. I was, you know, 22, 23, 24 in that age group. You know, it would be, and sometimes I think, and I'm happy that I did it when I was young, so I can, I was able to get out when I was young. When I was 28, I graduated from dental school. But the point is, is I would have been a much better student, maybe not from an academic standpoint, but from a social standpoint, if I was going later in life, and we did have some older students in school that went out and worked and came back in to be dentists, but if I would have done it later in life, at a different maturity level, it would have been a, a whole different situation for me. Did you have your dental school? Uh, did you have a obligation in the military for becoming, uh, being in the military to offset your education, or did you just join the military? When, as when a... I graduated from dental school, it was 1980, <clears throat> and the economy was in a downfall. And I just got out of school. I had spent 11 years of my life in college. And because the first time I applied in de to dental school, they didn't think I was serious. You know, this is back in the 70s. I had a big uh, Jimi Hendrix afro. I wore beads. I, you know, I was doing my thing. But I was a serious student. I had great grades coming out of college. But my image didn't conform to the, the image that they thought I could or should or want to be. And so to, to make a, to answer your question, I did not want to go into the military. And, but the economy was bad. I had an opportunity when I got out of dental school to buy a, a practice here in Tacoma at that time. But I, I knew I didn't want to settle down. I, I knew I kind of wanted just to sort of be free and get paid for it. So I, I didn't have any obligation to join the military. My dad say, hey, join the army, see the world. I actually thought that about joining the Navy because I was wearing a beard back then. And uh, But I didn't want to be on no ship for five and six months with a bunch of men fixing teeth. That, that, that didn't sound appealing to me at all. So I actually joined the Army and uh, asked to be transferred back down south. I wanted to go down south. So I was stationed, my first duty station, after going through a great basic training at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas, I went to uh, uh, my first duty station was at Fort Benning in Columbus, Georgia, and I was back down south. And uh, I was it was good to be there. Racism was still prevalent. I remember one day being in Georgia. <clears throat> I never know how this guy got my phone number, but he called me on the telephone, and he says, "Do you believe in integration?" And he says, wow, this is kind of a weird way to pick up the phone. He says, do you believe in integration? I says, who is this? He says, then do you believe in segregation? I says, who is this? And he gave me his name on the phone and says, I'm the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan here in Columbus, Georgia. And I said, whoa, welcome to the South. And I hung the phone up and uh, it was interesting, but... Huh. Uh, I'd be kind of curious to know uh, what your kids 
what would you describe as being the largest difference in um, the way your kids uh, conduct themselves relative to how you conducted yourself at their age? What is most obvious to you that you maybe think about from time to time about uh, in the 2000s how your kids are navigating this majority white um, society that we have Mm -hmm. relative to how you navigated this same society 30 years ago or whatever that was? That's a really good question. Um, What's interesting is all three of my boys have white wives. All three of them married white women. They don't see... When I grew up, even though my parents weren't from the South, and even though my mom was Irish and Indian and a smidgen of black, my mom looked white. My mom made it real clear to us that we were black. And all all my other three siblings were fair-skinned like me as well. But she made it real clear about you're black, you're going to have people that are going to say things, you know, and she instilled that in us. So we were kind of prepared for it. My kids, my son, when he was in kindergarten, my oldest son, he's 40 now, was on the bus and this little boy called him N-word, being mean. And he came home from school and he asked me what that was. He didn't get offended, didn't bother him. He didn't know what that was. Mm-hmm. And I'd explained to him that that was not a nice word to call somebody. We looked it up in the dictionary, and I said, I told him, I said, this is not what you are, you know. And um, so my children didn't grow up necessarily feeling that racial uh, tension. It almost seems like we've taken steps backwards from where the 90s growing up in the 80s and 90s as as far as where we're at now with all the the um it did, it doesn't mean it didn't happen the things that are going on it's just it wasn't brought to the forefront like it is now so my kids didn't really experience that per se every once in a while my one of my sons got pulled over one night but wasn't doing anything he got pulled over because he had these little red lights in his, his front headlights. He'd bought in his car from a military guy on, on the base. Didn't know it was illegal. Got pulled over. Um, they had him get out of the car. They handcuffed him. They searched his car. I mean, it, it was just crazy. Um, so they didn't really experience it until it happened to them. They didn't really feel that racial tension until it actually would happen to them periodically. Are your boys um, darker than you are? Oh, yeah. They're darker than me. So this driving while black thing then has been something they've experienced a little bit. Absolutely. I had a a Cadillac sedan um, at one point. I could drive that thing all over Lakewood. Never get stopped. And I know I was speeding at times. Never get stopped. My oldest son, he'd drive it. Probably five times out of ten, he'd get pulled over. He would just get pulled over randomly. Yeah. So, um, so it's still out there. Um, there are some good cops, and there are some cops that, eh, you know, and, and there are good people, and then there are people that have their issues. So, but yeah, they, they didn't grow up the way I grew up. You know, yeah. so in a way that's good because they don't see color. You know, they don't see color. But, you know, I, I would actually say that for me, 
it was harder for me to accept them not wanting to date a girl of color. You know, I would I would say to them sometimes, how come you don't date a nice black girl? What what what's the the deal? You know, you guys gravitate towards. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I want you first to date somebody that knows the Lord, but um, they had reasons of why they didn't. So it was me having to deal with the prejudices I grew up with from my family, my mom and and my dad. Not so much my dad, more my mom. Did you accept their rationale that they gave you as a re, uh, as to why they were not dating uh, black women, but mostly white? Uh, there were some parts I could accept. There were yeah. some things I could accept um, because they weren't in a, a, an environment where they were the only blacks, like Richard growing up, you know, in his neighborhood. We mm-hmm. had a multicultural neighborhood. So there were some things with the young women going to the school they went to that might be true but then you know yeah i think it just was easier for him yeah you know in this final segment of this episode we open discussion up about the brianna taylor case and the issue of defunding the police if if this was just an isolated incident and and you have just this on the plate to deal with it wouldn't get you so upset. If George Floyd George Floyd never happened, if the Pruitt gentleman up in Rochester, New York never happened, if you never hear stories about black men who are killed by cops in Minnesota and Michigan and, and all the other places in the world, or the black guy that was selling cigarettes in New York, I forget his name right now, or, or Trayvon Martin, or all these other incidents, if they never happen, and you had this one incident to deal with, it wouldn't make you so upset. But when you start to see a pattern of things that are not good, when you start to see a pattern and understand the statistics about white death with cops versus black death with cops, and even though there's more white men in America than there are black men, but yet the number of black deaths and black incarceration and and black and, and negative black things that are happening to black people, it starts to build up within you where you're saying, you know what, this is just not right. Yeah. And so and so seeing these these cops get off, I really try to look at I really try to look at the law, the evidence, because now we're, we, we, we're living in a, in, in, a, in, a, in a world, in a society where you have popular opinion, what, what, the, what the mop or the herd want, and then you're looking at the factual legal evidence. So let's look at the evidence of this case. Number one, they have a search warrant, but the search warrant is for the wrong house. So now you got cops going having a search warrant for the wrong house, which number one, someone should be held accountable for that. You know, you just can't say, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. So f- now you have a you have a warrant for the wrong house. You got cops going in. Maybe they announced themselves. Maybe they didn't announce themselves. 
But the but but if you take a look at it, if you take a look at it now, you got someone breaking into your home, shouting and yelling and shooting with a gun, and you live in a in a neighborhood that maybe you don't feel quite as safe in. So now your your her boyfriend has a gun that is legally registered and he has the right to defend himself when somebody come in. And now you have an innocent bystander bystander that has shot and killed for absolutely nothing at all and was contributing to society and she was educated and nobody is going to be held accountable for that? There's too many questions in this. Now, if that was an isolated case, you can say, okay, I can maybe look at that. That's isolated. It didn't mean to happen. You know, let's see if we can strengthen the laws and strengthen these procedures. But with all these other cases, to add on to this case, you know, it's not right. It's, it's, it's not right what is happening. You know, it's just not right. All these things. And so people are angry. People are frustrated. You know, you got there and, and, and you got COVID, you know, the, uh, the, the, the virus that is making people frustrated. You have you have you have job security that's making people frustrated. You got kids not going to school, making people frustrated. You have all this anger that's building up in America. And then you have a president on top of it that is making the situation worse. So, you know, I'm not happy with a lot of things that are going on. Like I said, if it was an isolated incident, that's one thing. But when you add it up all together, it stinks. It does feel like a storm. Perfect storm, all these things together at the same time. Yeah. So you weren't surprised then that this, there was a resurgence in the uh, demonstrations and whatnot that happened uh, as a result of that. You know, one of the things also is that is that the people in the streets, the agitators, they've lost respect and confidence in the police department. Now, per, my personal feeling about it is I don't believe that police should be defunded. If anything, I think you should increase their funding and increase their training so situations like this can be stopped. But there is frustration in the streets of America. And on top of it, now you have these professional agitators mm -hmm. that are going in to make the situation worse mm -hmm. than it is. Mm -hmm. So you you know I I'm I'm just I'm I'm very uh, I'm not as optimistic as some people are that that man is going to be able to solve his problems. You know if you if you look at the history of man. There's always been one race of people that is on top of another race of people throughout the history of mankind. And uh, it, the laws have to change so people can be protected. Mm -hmm. And the only way that we really are going to protect people so stuff like this is stopped is with laws. Yeah. Because sooner or later, I mean, you know, what are we going to do? Tear up our own country? Keep this war going on? Mm -hmm. Have the National Guard come out and, and, and have a civil war between the National Guards and the people of the streets? I don't think so. That's not what yeah. we're looking for. Laws no. have to be created and enforced 
that are fair. Yeah. That are fair. Mm-hmm. And, and, and many people of color don't feel that the laws on the books and the way they're being executed mm-hmm. are fair. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And, yeah. and also, Joe, it's, you know, it's, it's, it has to be a grassroots level. And I think what you're doing is, is so important. Because what you're doing is you're informing people, but you're also trying to change their hearts. And, and I can tell from talking to you, I don't, I don't know what you were like in the past, but your heart is, is, is towards things that are fair and towards things that are righteous and towards things that are good. And, and if, if there's anything that your podcast can do is, is maybe you can uh, just keep on talking what you're talking about. But, but letting people know that, that we need to change not only the laws, but change your, change your heart. And Martin Luther King says that a man should be judged by the content of his character, you know, instead of the color of his skin. You know, that's the truth. If you find a jerk, I don't care what color he is, he's a jerk. Mm-hmm. But yet if you can love someone based on, you know, they trying to be people of integrity and character and honor, those are the people that we want to connect with. So we want to connect with the army of integrity and, and morality and high standards and character. And I don't want to see my city, my community be like this anymore. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, but we're confronted with so many issues. We got the we got the homeless. We got the the economy. We got the virus. We've got so much to deal with that people will be mad and anger and frustrated over Issues that may not even relate to the issue at hand. Yeah. Well, I feel I feel overwhelmed by much of it personally, mm-hmm. and uh, just have to uh, turn it over to the Lord and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. allow Him to uh, carry these uh, huge burdens that seem to be piling up, and um, recognize that uh, we each can only do whatever we're feeling called to do individually and try to do the best we can with that and uh, so I I really want to thank you both for your willingness and your generosity of time here today and sharing with uh, with us and uh, being willing to share uh, with the listeners and uh, so I will uh, call this a wrap and i appreciate very much and having you guys on our podcast today thank you we we enjoyed being here being here Mm -hmm. my sincere thanks to richard and deborah ferguson for being our guests today on episode number 15 i hope you may have heard some different perspectives on life as well as on some of our current systemic racism issues that are happening right now If your personal awakening journey has been further informed by this episode, I hope you will share this podcast with friends, family, and co-workers who may also benefit from this content. Remember that all our episodes are available at myawakeningpodcast.com, as well as most all podcast players, including Apple, Stitcher, and YouTube. Coming up next on episode number 16, our guest will be Antonio McLemore, and he will be helping us to explore the topic of racism and the church. I hope you will keep listening to My Awakening podcast, and remember that only together can we effectively move towards healing America's racial divide and achieving justice for all.
Just get it off your chest. 